I will work day in and day out. Wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Jenkins, CEO of the European Tourism Association and chair of the European Tourism Alliance in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. So the first question I'd like to ask is for those who haven't heard um, of your work uh, with European Tourism Association, uh, could you please explain what it does? Um, ETOA, which is the acronym under which we we operate, uh, was founded back in 1989 by a group of tour operators who were um, involved in the business of selling Europe as a destination throughout the world. Um, In those days, they had Europe written on the front of their brochures, which was wrapped in agencies in North America, in in Japan, in in Canada, in, in Mexico and South America. Um, And they were very concerned that there was a lot of legislative traffic that was impacting their their business, but there was no representation for inbound tourists. Uh, Inbound tourists famously don't vote, and so their interests are broadly ignored uh, by the destinations into which they go. And so we were set up, um, and since then we've grown. Um, We're now about, even after the, the trauma of COVID, uh, we still have about eleven to twelve hundred members, and um, we have representatives in a, a number of European countries. Our, our main secretariat base remains London, although uh, we are founded um, now. Founded as our, our principal head, headquarters is Brussels, and so far as that's where the uh, ETOA is, is now registered. Um, but um, and we continue to to fight for the interests of inbound tourists. It has to be said, in the last 20 years, the notion of an inbound tourist has changed. Um, uh, We're no longer dominated by companies which um, sell with brochures saying Europe. Um, A lot of our members are business-to-business intermediaries Mm -hmm. that sell to other businesses in origin markets such as China uh, and Japan and Indonesia and India. Um, But we also uh, have a lot of people who are involved in intra-European traffic. So um, a number of the large online travel agents, for instance, are members of ETOA. And there are a number of tour operators who sell European product to European citizens. And I I use the term Europe in the widest possible sense, the geographic sense rather than the political one. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, It's recently uh, been revealed that um, because of new entry requirements to the UK that school visits from um, pupils from, from outside the UK coming to the UK have um, plummeted. How much of an impact do you think that this will have on the UK's soft power and reputation around the world that uh, school children who otherwise would have been able to um, come to the UK and visit it have uh, unfortunately not been able to because of the new requirements? Well, I, I think... The thing to note is that this is an unwanted byproduct of uh, the decision to to stop people using ID cards to enter the UK. Um, up until the end of last year, um, European Union nationals and EMEA nationals were able to come into the UK using a, a, an ID card. Um, now, uh, there may be virtues behind this decision, and it's not really uh, for me to debate those virtues. 
What, what has happened is that the people who this has most radically affected are people who are, who are children studying in schools. And most European countries, um, really, there is very little, not little, but there's a very minor uptake of passports because passports are not required to travel throughout Europe. You can travel throughout Europe with an ID card. And this is particularly the case with children under the age of 18. And um, up until the end of last year, it was possible for a school group uh, to arrive in this country with a, a teacher um, having a full list and all details of the pupils in their charge uh, to come here. They would have to have a passport, but it was perfectly reasonable and indeed un, un, unremarkable for the group to arrive with uh, proof of uh, identity and proof of validity of residence in the country for which they came. Um, now, the decision to make everybody carry a passport um, has had a really dramatic impact, probably far more dramatic than was originally envisaged, because um, it's one thing to turn around to all the school children and say, you've got to go and get a passport, which is uh, both a, a considerable effort in, term, in terms of logistics and time and bureaucracy, and of cost, I mean, passports vary in cost between 50 euros and 120 euros in Europe, so it's, it's not a small charge. The main problem actually lies with the fact that the number of countries have lots of um, refugee and asylum seekers, um, uh, residents in those countries, and the second generation children are not in a position yet to get a European passport. Um, if they have to get a passport, they've got to go back to the country from which their parents and um, that involves returning to places which they fled from. It's very difficult to tell a Syrian person that they have to go back to Syria to get a passport <laughs> off that regime in order for them to come to London. Um, not only do they need a passport, but having got a passport, they would then need a visa, which is now a very expensive and time-consuming prospect. So it effectively removes the ability of, uh, of classes containing one or two or three um, second-generation immigrant children from coming to Europe, because you cannot turn around to a class and say, we're all going to Europe, we're all going to England on a school trip, but uh, you three, you're, you're not entitled to because you, you don't belong here, really, you don't, you're not welcome there. Um, and in fact, they then, it then permeates the whole school, because you cannot then have some classes going to Europe without any of these children, mm -hmm but banning others. So it, it becomes effectively a blanket ban in most of uh, our source markets for the school groups. So it, it's, it's, um, it's a very strange situation we find ourselves in. On one level, perfectly reasonable to tell children to get a passport if they want to go abroad. In practical terms, it's completely unreasonable and it, it just doesn't work. And so we're seeing a 90% a, a in some sectors, a 90% decline in demand for these people. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of, so, I mean, the, the initial impact is going to be economic. Um, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of language schools, uh, a lot of communities, which up until now have hosted uh, hundreds of thousands of school children mm -hmm. coming, to Europe, uh, coming to the UK, and they've hosted them largely in, in, in homes, and they've been dispersed throughout the UK. Um, these people um, are not going to be there, and this is a real loss. So we've calculated that it's over a, um, a million, sorry, over a billion pounds worth of lost 
export income, so to speak, uh, money flowing into this country over, over the two years that, that, that we're now looking at. Um, I think uh, the, the, the broader point, and it's well raised by you, is how, how this is going to affect us in the long term. Um, the great virtue of hosting children in England at this stage of their development means that they form a bond with, um, with the United Kingdom which they would not otherwise have. And it becomes not a second home, but somewhere which we hope they have happy memories of, and they feel very comfortable with coming to visit. And this is an enormously powerful hook to ensure that people come not just once, but two, three, four, five times throughout their lives. And that, um, that is not going to be happening under the current, current system. Do you think that there could be any potential um, political consequences in, in areas in which there has been this, this economic loss, as, as, as you point out, that there may be people in those areas who feel that this is a, a decision um, made by the government which has affected them and, and, and as such it might impact the way that they think of the of, of, of the current um government and, and and potentially how they feel in the in the run-up to the next election well i mean it may well be a political mm -hmm. situation I, the, the, it's very interesting that the um these rules don't just impact um school children they also impact um uh, young people wanting to come to england and uh, attend um uh, attend language schools um also come to england uh, England is actually a, a very popular destination for sporting um, excursions where people come and play football, for example, and train to play football in, in England. Um, all these, um, this, this industry really is very severely affected. Um, and this industry is large, not totally, is largely concentrated um, in areas of the South Coast. And uh, areas of the South Coast, as you would know from your political background, are um, slightly depressed communities um, now, uh, which have traditionally been um, uh, a conservative homeland, really. Um, uh, but now they're going to have a really tough time um, attracting the sort of business they had uh, before COVID. It's, it's going to be very, very difficult. So the language schools themselves are, are, are going to be facing real headwinds. What's curious is when you talk to people who um, have um, uh, you know, have a dispersed language school program. So they have language schools in, in, in the UK, but they also have them in, in, in Ireland, and they also have them in Malta, and also have them in the Netherlands, which is a sort of uh, semi-English as a first language uh, destination. Um, they uh, have filled their required, I mean, they're, they're, they're completely full outside the UK. In the UK, they're really struggling. So there's, there's a massive displacement of business out away from the UK to other destinations, and this is um, this is proving really problematic. Mm -hmm. and, of, and of course, you've mentioned the the impact of um, COVID on uh, English as a, a, a second language skills on, on on language skills, and that combined with this is really going to to hurt them, isn't it? How much do you think politicians and, and the public are aware of um, language skills, and also the enormous pressure that they're under at the moment? I, look, every industry thinks that people don't appreciate them and are, un, and are, un, and are broadly unaware of, uh, of the impact that they have. 
I, I think at the moment, um, politicians are, are struggling with huge issues. I mean, we're, we're recording this podcast the day after Jeremy Hunt's uh, statement in the House of Commons. Um, and I, what amazes me sometimes is the fact that they are um, they are probably aware of the fact that um, this is having a, a damaging effect on English language schools. They seem to be unaware of the economic impact that this will have. Um, long term, medium and long term damage to Britain's soft power is not something that you worry about if your house is on fire. And um, uh, you know the UK's economic house is, is burning at the moment. They're trying to put out fires. But um, it's extraordinary that we are in a situation where uh, whatever you think of Brexit, um, this banning school children was not on <laughs> the Brexit <laughs> schedule. And um, this is causing real harm. And uh, we can ill afford to turn away the money that this represents. And we can ill afford to, to cause medium to long term harm or a loss of opportunity that this represents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to turn now just um, to um, climate change and tourism because they are somewhat interlinked. People understand that if, if, if you travel, then that's going to necessarily, um, if, if you travel in a particular way, have an impact on the climate. How best do you think we can ensure that people can still visit other countries, that there can still be tourism, but do it in a way that doesn't damage the climate that is done in a, in a um, climate-friendly way? Well, I think you know, the first thing to acknowledge is that we, we've got a problem here. Uh, and the number one problem is that uh, consumers have got to start buying into uh, climate responsibility. Um, it's, I'm not here to blame customers, but yeah. I'm merely saying that um, if, if there is, um, even if there is a wide acceptance of the need to be um, more uh, climate friendly or more sustainable, um, people tend to hang that up a little bit when they're choosing holidays. If I can use a, um, a lateral um, example, um, everyone talks about the growth of wellness holidays and how people are really interested in their health and they uh, will go to destinations which uh, offer them all kinds of opportunities to improve their health and sense of well-being. Um, that has not dented the overwhelming desire of Northern Europeans to go down to the Mediterranean and expose themselves to high levels of radiation with the consequent dangers of skin cancer. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there is, um, and in such situations, it's a bit like, um, I don't know, adopting an, uh, a health food diet while still chain smoking. It, it is it's an extraordinary phenomenon. Now, to get back to the, um, the climate change, it is widely attested and widely recognized that there is a climate emergency. Um, uh, we are um, signatories to the Glasgow Declaration on, on, uh, on the fact that we recognise that this is a problem. Um, as an association, uh, I speak for ETOA, we are um, um, committed to cutting our carbon footprint, both in terms of our office operations and in terms of the events that we hold. Um, now, how can we get, and, I, uh, and the members that, who are members of ETOA, it's not overwhelmingly the case, but a number of members are signing up 
to um, reduce the carbon footprint and do everything they can to ensure that their suppliers are doing so as well. Mm. So uh, there is, as ever with these things, a huge top-down imperative to be seen to be doing things. But without an overwhelming, you know, without this being number one priority for customers, it's going to be really tough to shift. Um, now, there are things we can do. There are things that there is very, it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult um, to mitigate the carbon impact of an airflow. Mm -hmm. The only thing you can do is do offsetting, and this we encourage everyone to do. There is a, a huge impetus by those people involved in this area. Um, to ensure that people um, use the least impactful mode of transport, mm. uh, they uh, consume the least impactful form of um, produce, and uh, they don't behave in a, a, in a fossil fuel extravagant way when, when they're there. Um, it's, and this is, but what I keep worrying about is that this is still a top down initiative. Mm. People who will uh, only buy products which are uh, carbon virtuous, if I may mm -hmm. use that phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is still a, a niche product for people for whom this is the sine qua non of their, of their, their holiday choice. Um, we've got to find a way of most, we're motivating, mobilizing um, industry, but it's got to have a reciprocal impulse from the consumer. Because without that reciprocal impulse from the consumer who buy what they want to buy, um, someone will supply it for them, and um, it's going to. So at the moment, it's a tough trading environment. I think it's just inevitable that we're going to end up in that zone. We've got to be more sustainable. We've got to be seen to be more sustainable. And I, I, I think um, it's just a question. It's a strange moment where the industry is ahead of the consumer game at this moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of um, when people are visiting different countries, you mentioned trying to encourage them to travel in, in, in the most uh, carbon neutral way or in a way that doesn't um, greatly affect the environment. And of course, part of that is infrastructure in different countries, trains being available, trams, alternative um, to cars being available for, for tourists. So uh, how best do you think that organisations like the ETOA can encourage uh, positive infrastructure developments around Europe and, and, and how much um, do you think about infrastructure in, in, in countries across Europe? Well, I mean, you know, we use it. <laughs> infrastructure is used. I, yeah. I think the, um, uh, I think there are a number of preconceptions that people have got to hang up. Um, I, I think um, if you're looking at a truly not sustainable, but one of the least impactful modes of transport is probably um, a, a, a coach. Mm. Um, it's got the highest, particularly if it's a tourist coach, mm. everybody in the um, commercial chain is striving to ensure that that coach is absolutely 100% full. Doesn't always succeed. <laughs> the, coach, um, the coach is, um, uh, you know, everything um, in terms of the imperatives, everyone is driving to maximize the load on that coach in a way that just doesn't occur at the moment on trains or on buses or on any other mode of transport. And, and you will find that the um, CO2 input per passenger kilometre on a, um, a modern tourist coach is a fraction of that of what you would see in a car. And it is less, I would have heard, than a lot of trains. Mm -hmm. 
um, the, the train calculations. I, I think I would love to see a really thorough investigation of the carbon impact, uh, the, the carbon output of trains, including the, that includes the cost of the infrastructure investment. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to say that uh, trains are completely carbon neutral because they run on uh, electricity, mm -hmm. which is derived from nuclear power plants or wind farms, uh, but they then ignore um, the fact that you're um, pouring hundreds of thousands of tons of concrete all over the ground and um, uh, manufacturing hundreds of tons of heavy metal that you're shifting about. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's and, and the main point about trains is that trains are very rarely full uh, in the same way that a, a tourism coach is. So, I mean, um, I, I have a, perhaps a soft spot for tourist coaches, but they are um, extraordinarily um, efficient in their maximization capacity. And uh, I, I bewail destinations that um, block out their city centers to tourist coaches, but open them up to cars. Um, this is anti-environmental. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, we've discussed COVID, we, we, we've touched upon it um, slightly, but to what extent do you think that COVID has permanently impacted or, or permanently changed the tourism industry? I just don't know. So I'll, 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 I'll say, look, you're asking me uh, to what extent has COVID permanently changed the tourism industry? Mm -hmm. And the straightforward answer is I don't know. <laughs> uh, we just don't know at the moment. We're still in this situation where, um, uh, you know, you had a massive inundation and the floodwaters have departed and we're looking around the landscape to see what the damage is. Um, how permanent that is, 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 is um, um, is open to question. I think the, um, the the immediate problems that we've got with COVID are in terms of meeting demand. So demand is there. It hasn't impacted demand that much. Um, the great rushing after you know, small groups and the great outdoors and uh, regional tourism, um, which is supposed to be coming on the back of COVID, there is some evidence for, for um, this to this occurring, but it's not that great. Uh, most of the people who I have who sell um, the great bucket shop destinations of Europe, London, Paris, Amsterdam, um, Venice, Florence, Rome, uh, they're selling uh, and demand is flooding back to these products. And the difficulties, what the big difficulties we've got as a result of COVID and the fact that uh, 50 to 60% of the workforce that we that were, were working in the industry prior to 2020 uh, um, were, had to be let go. There was no work for them to do. And they found, quite reasonably, they found alternative work. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, proving very, very difficult throughout Europe to um, attract people back into work. Um, it's not easy to attract people um, back into a job which you just laid them off from. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and so there is a um, there is a, there's, there's a tough ask. It's particularly acute in the UK uh, because um, the UK has decided um, to cut its uh, talent pool from roughly 600 million people down to 60 million people. Mm -hmm. So um, that is uh, you know it's a real struggle in the UK to get the people uh, that we need to do the jobs that we need done. 
So the, the extraordinary thing we've got is that we've got to Holland, we're really struggling to meet that demand. Now, it, will there be a longer term impact of this? I, I just don't know. Um, the thing that will, the only area where there is possible potential for change, because from a leisure tourism point of view, which is what I'm really involved in, mm-hmm. um, uh, the demand patterns are reasserting themselves in the, in the same way that they manifested themselves prior, prior to 2020. Um, the interesting question is, what is the demand pattern for business travel? Um, is the fact that people can do meetings by Zoom um, not the same experience as um, meeting face-to-face, but it's a lot more efficient and a lot less expensive. So, um, you know, the um, what impact that has and how far, far business travel will recover and how it will recover is actually one of the big question marks about the tourism industry. Because beyond no illusion, um, the much le- leisure travel, particularly leisure travel that local tourism is involved in, which is um, city tourism, um, the infrastructure for city tourism is actually developed and run for the business visitor in mind. And the leisure travel tra- traveler sort of piggybacks on the core demand, stays in the hotels that business travel um, has sustained and built. So if business travel declines, then it's going to be a very interesting uh, forward picture for the tourism industry. But um, uh, we've, you know, if to go back to your original question and my original uh, refusal to answer it, um, we simply don't know. Um, the, we're rebuilding again. Um, we're struggling to find people to do the jobs that we need doing. Does that mean that we'll have to change the nature of the jobs that they do? Does it mean, mean that we have to change the nature of the remuneration that they do or the terms and conditions that they receive to do these jobs? All these questions are up in the air. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, we've come to the end of the podcast now, Tom. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. If people want to find out more about you or more about the ETOA, where should they go to, to find out more? They can go um, to know more about ETOA. They should go to um, ETOA.org. Uh, it's where our website is. And the Tourism Alliance also has a Tourism, Tourism Alliance website, which is readily available through a search engine. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Not all well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast. Like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the Debated Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. Mm-hmm.